the volume. Hey guys, it's the Sessions presented by FanDuel. It might be cold, but the sports calendar is heating up, baby, and there's no better place to get in on the action than with FanDuel. The app is safe, secure, and so, so easy to use. FanDuel always has exclusive offers, boosts, and more. And when you win, you're gonna get paid real fast. FanDuel has lots of ways to play, like with the spread, money line, over, under, team totals, player props, and so much more. You can jump into the action at any time during the game with live betting. And you can combine multiple bets from the same game in a same game parlay to try out the same game parlay plus. Get in on that. And... FanDuel is now live in Maryland, y'all. So use the promo code Renee, R-E-N-E-E, and download the FanDuel app today to start making every moment more. Disclaimer, 21 plus in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG for Colorado, Iowa, Minneapolis, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Virginia. 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat for Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT for Indiana. 1-877-770-STOP for Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org for Maryland. Tennessee Redline, 1-800-889-9789 for Tennessee. Visit ksgamblinghelp.com for Kansas. 1-800-522-4700 for Wyoming or visit www.1800gambler.net for West Virginia. Hey guys, welcome to the sessions. I am so freaking excited for this episode on a very personal level uh, because I am joined by one of my nearest and dearest. He is now the senior vice president and co-executive producer for All Elite Wrestling, Mike Mansuri. Michael Mansuri, if you want to get nasty with it. Um, he's just the best. Um, him and I go back, obviously, with our time um, at WWE. Pretty much any time you would have seen me on air, with WWE, he would have been the man producing it, um, whether it was talking smack, doing kickoff shows, um, X, Y and Z. He, he really helped me a ton through my career. Not only that, but we also just like traveled the globe together, <laughs> which is really how you get to know somebody. So they say. Um, so Mike is the absolute best. I'm so excited to have him back in the world of professional wrestling. He just spent the past year plus in Singapore working for one championship prior to that. Uh, with Pat McAfee, and of course, prior to that with WWE. Um, so he has been there and done that. He's got so much experience under his belt. And now with us both being at AEW, just getting to be creative together. And, you know, just for him on his own to see what he's going to be able to do with AEW, I honestly cannot wait to see what he's going to do. I feel like there was a little bit of buzz on the internet seeing that he had officially signed and coming in uh, with a senior vice president role, co-executive producer. Um, gets to put on those big boy pants and get to work. Cannot wait. Super pumped. We get into all things early life with him, um, starting out at MTV to working at WWE, working with Kevin Dunn, working with Triple H, working with Vince McMahon, now working with Tony Khan. Um, just what makes this guy tick? What makes him the best guy for the gig? We get into all of these things. So guys, without further ado, this is Mike Mansuri. This has been a bit of a moment in the making because we were supposed to podcast a while ago. But now what a better time than right now to have you here on the sessions because life is life and out here. We're out here doing it. Yeah, life's life and pretty hard, isn't it? Huh? Oh, my God. OK, so 
obviously, you know, you just signed to AEW. You are brand new being back on the road. Um, you were the senior vice president, co-executive producer of All Elite Wrestling. What a feather in the cap. And we're going to get into all of the AEW um, details. But for people that um, maybe are less familiar with who you are, they've heard the name Mike Mansuri. Who is he? What does he do? Why is getting Mike Mansuri such an epic signing for AEW? And that's what this podcast is going to be about, everybody, is who Mike Mansuri is. Um, not only is he one of my nearest and dearest pals, um, but we met, of course, on the road with WWE for the last you know, almost 10 years. Jeez, for me. We, we go back even further than that. I still remember meeting you for the very first time while you were doing your on cameras for the international programming at WWE. <laughs> and I, remember I was going in to shoot an episode of WWE in Espanol with my guys, Carlos Cabrera and Marcelo Rodriguez. And in the studio, just wrapping up her sash with the crew over there is just this uh, ingenue from Toronto, right? <laughs> that, long, that long blonde hair, young Renee Paquette. <laughs> And little did uh, I know that one of my most favorite, most cherished personal and professional relationships would have kicked off on that day and all the stuff that we would have done individually oh my God. together, right? Like, holy shit. It is really crazy. I mean, uh, for me, and I, you know, same for you is like for uh, the big chunk of our professional careers were spent together. We've done so many shows together, whether it's doing kickoff panels for WWE, doing WrestleManias. You are like the brains behind doing Talking Smack. We're going to get into all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, man, our our um, careers have just been like really interwoven together. So I obviously could not be more thrilled that you are at AEW now. OK, let's take things back to the beginning, because that's where I like to start. I like to in chronological order. Um, but you worked at MTV for a chunk of time. That was your first foray into the television business was MTV, correct? I started uh, at Hofstra University and within like the first couple of months of being there, I just knew that college wasn't for me. You know what I mean? I graduated high school at 16 years old. My first week of college, I was 16 years old. So I was <laughs> wait, I didn't know that. What? You graduated high school at 16? Yeah, yeah, man. I had one point, at one point in life, I was actually pretty smart. Well, uh, listen, I know how brilliant you are, uh, but I didn't know that you were like a child prodigy. No, 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 no. I, I, I was. And then to stop getting my ass kicked by like all the older kids in class after I got in skip the grade, I kind of tried to like dumb myself down a little bit, which is not a smart thing to do. But, you know, when you're all of two feet tall and surrounded by just bigger kids that have gone through puberty way ahead of you. You do what you can to survive, right? Uh, but yeah, look, you know, I, I, I knew right off the bat that college wasn't necessarily for me. You know, I wanted to kind of take some time off and just try to figure things out. So I left school and wound up never going back, much to the chagrin of my mother. Thank God that she uh, had a lot of patience for me. How old were you then when you left school? Uh, I was 18 when I left school. So I did one full year and just I just knew it wasn't for me. Um, you know, kind of like told around, did a bunch of different stuff, you know, got involved with a little improv comedy. Um, because I'd had these like delusions of grandeur of making it as like, you know, an, an, an on-air personality or even, you know, some sort of actor, etc. Um, I started bartending right in my early 20s and was having a blast. I didn't really think about much about anything. And I befriended a woman, and this is how I got into MTV. I remember vividly the day she came in, I carted her at the bar to take her drink. And she had a very, very distinct last name, Leguizamo. And at the time, right, like here I am, a guy trying to get to comedy, uh, you know, coming from a Hispanic family. I'm looking at her ID and she goes, what's the problem? And I was like, you just have a very distinct last name. And she's like, oh, you mean like my brothers, John Leguizamo, who's one of my idols. 
And I'm, you know, sitting, I'm like, get the fuck out of here. And we strike up this fast friendship. Right. And I remember one night months down the line, she and a, one of her best friends growing up, who's now like a, a high powered agent in the sports uh, broadcasting world. We're sitting there and she, Marie looks at me and she goes, what do you want to do when you get older? And I'm like, I don't know. I think it was like 21, 22 at the time. And I was like, I don't know. I'm making pretty good money cash bartending like three to four nights a week. Like my life's pretty good. My hours are pretty wacky, but they fit into what I want to do. She says, uh, why don't you come give TV a try? I think you'd like it. You've got a great personality. You seem to be hardworking and I think you'd be a great fit. So like, what was your first job? What did they bring you in to do? So I was a production assistant at MTV3, the Spanish MTV, where I wound up meeting a very good friend of mine who you know very well, Mr. Mike Verga, who spent some time with WWE. Um, but he, so Mike and I basically spent all day running errands. It's not like we were like logging tapes or anything that like was happening within. We spent most of our time running all over Manhattan, getting Jamba Juice and Starbucks ordered. Um, there was this awesome, giant, like multi-level warehouse in Chelsea that we used to have to go to a lot to get props for, you know, TRL and the Spanish version of TRL, basically just odds and ends that took us all over Manhattan. So while I was doing that, I was still kind of bartending, but I'd fallen in love, you know what I mean? Especially like those, that first opportunity that I got to work on a live broadcast was an episode of the Spanish TRL. And I remember going into the control room just in case Marie needed me for anything to basically be like a runner just seeing like the, the energy, that frenetic energy and the pacing, I fell in love. The, the hearts were in my eyes. Like I, I, I had found my calling and I knew that this was going to be, this was going to be my life's work and it was going to be live TV. You spent a good bit of a good chunk of time at MTV, correct? How long were you there for? Yeah, I want to say over a year, maybe a year and a half, somewhere, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, so I was still bartending. And I remember this was around Thanksgiving time, right? And like when you're, you know, fresh out of college and stuff, everyone comes back home for the holidays and, you know, they'll, everyone gathers at their local watering hole or whatever. I'd run into a girl that I'd known since we were in junior high school and, you know, doing the usual catch up, what have been up to, that, 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 where it's like taking you, et cetera, et cetera. And I'd mentioned to her that I was working at MTV and she said like, Hey, you know, when we were kids, I remember you loved wrestling. My boyfriend works at WWE. He works in their home video department. And apparently they're always looking for people. Do you want me to connect you guys? Maybe you pass them off your resume. You never, you never know what happens, but they're always looking for, for new people to get involved. And I was like, yeah, sure. And I didn't really think anything about it. I didn't think anything would come up the opportunity. Sent a, an email to, over to her boyfriend, a phenomenal dude who's still with WWE, no longer her boyfriend, but they've all found happiness in life. Uh, his name's Pete McKinney. And Connected with Pete, sent him over my stuff. And I want to say sometime after the holidays. So once we crossed off into the new year, the interview process began with WWE. Okay. So what was your interview process like? Mine was a shit show. I had to go in and do literally every version of potentially being an on-air personality with WWE. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, hosting like a, a pre-show or an after show, doing commentary for the first time, um, doing interviews, all that stuff. What was your interview process like? My interview process was far tame, far more tame. Thank God. It started off with just a recruiter from HR. And I think once I kind of passed that preliminary test, they brought me in to meet with a, a few of the senior folks on the team. One person, the one person who I met with, that was probably the most challenging part of the interview process 
was who would eventually go on to be my manager. And you know her well is Kasama. So <laughs> I go in to meet with Kasama. I, you know, I'm 20, I want to say it was about 23 or 24 at the time. And I was like, oh man, this is, this is like a pretty big deal. And they told me that she ran the road crew just to double back real quick. So initially they had submitted my resume in to be a writer's assistant. When I spoke with the recruiter, he said, hey, so the writer's assistant, there's a pretty bulky amount of uh, applicants for that role. If you're interested, I have a position open for production assistant on our travel team, our travel production team. He's like, would you ever be interested in that? And at that ding, point, ding, I'd, ding. Only, yeah, I'd only ever done, you know, two flights in my entire life going to Chicago from New York and then back. So it was all about it. Met Kasama, who at the time was running the road crew, right, as we, uh, were, 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 we were known. And it was the most nerve-wracking interview I had ever had in my entire I would life. like to see you nervous. I've never seen you nervous a day in my life. It's hysterical. Well, Kasama brought it out of me because she her, her interview style was hysterical because if you know her, she's got, she's got this great personality. But when she wants to be, she can be intense. I don't know if she was just trying to test my mettle to see if I could hang because it is a very demanding job, right? To be on the road 52 weeks a year, working on live TV, pressure like you've never seen, and in front of the biggest people possible, right? Like who takes an entry-level job where they're working with the CEO, you know, the head of TV, et cetera. So I'm literally, it felt like those old style, like police interrogations. where the light <laughs> Yeah, light like shining in your face. I have a, a tendency, if I get nervous, I speak very fast. I think she caught it like she caught on to it. And I remember Kasama just kind of sitting there looking at me and she goes, you seem nervous. Why are you nervous? You have no reason to be nervous for it. And just continuing to grill me and grill me. And I was like, oh, shit, this is just going so terribly backwards. No, I thought I, blew it. I absolutely thought I blew it. Panic, and panic. I remember driving back to Long Island uh, where I was living at the time from Stanford and just sitting there going like, man, it was going really, really well until I got to that last interview. I was like, I hope I didn't fuck it up talking to the boss. Lo and behold, I think it was like a week or so later, they gave me a call, offered me the job and started off an 11 plus year journey that I am ever grateful for. For you to rise the ranks within WWB to get to the position that you were in, um, how long did it take you to really start to get some traction behind you to, uh, to start getting promoted and whatnot? I started off as a PA, right? And, you know, I fell head over heels for the job. The job was very, very demanding. Um, but like, I'll speak honestly, right? Like there were times where I was my own worst enemy through my ascension. How so? So you're 24, 25 years old. You're living this rock star life in and out of hotels, on tour buses, et cetera. Um, you kind of buy into the hype, right? Like it's pretty hard not to. And when you're successful at it and you're starting to get noticed by the right people, you develop a bit of a chip on your shoulder. You know, there was a while where, you know, it could be subjective, but I know that I was on the wrong side of it. You know, people can mistake confidence for cockiness. And I think a lot of the times that got in my way to the point where like, you know, even if there were underperforming members on our team and stuff, like, you know, we all kind of policed ourselves, but I always took it upon myself to kind of be like the, the standard bearer. And it was my, you know, much, much to my detriment, right? Like I, I just, you know, just a lot of like dumb young kid moves where the intentions were right. It's just the manner of execution wasn't. So that actually delayed my development a little bit at the beginning of my career, you know, because even through attitude problems, if you want to call them that, right? Like the work, the, the drive was always there. 
It's a really delicate balance too. And it's like, you're right, because you start to get momentum behind yourself. You are already confident. And then it starts to air to like, maybe just going beyond that. that You're like, fuck, how do I reel that back in to find that perfect harmony of having the confidence with the ability to now be able to go out and execute? It's hard to do. Yeah. And it comes with maturity, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's, a, and it's a maturity you have to find within yourself in order to do, because again, it's, look, it is so unbelievably easy to get lost into that lifestyle because. Oh my it's God, so, it's such a bubble. Yeah. You know what I mean? And look, I grew up from very, like I, I can I come from very humble beginnings, right? Like we weren't, we weren't like poor, but we are, you know, we weren't like well to do. Um, so to be in a situation now where you're flying every week, so you start achieving status and you're getting first class upgrades and you're staying in these amazing hotels and you're rubbing elbows with all these people, right? If you don't watch yourself, you know what I mean? Like, and that's the funny part for me, right? You're so worried about policing the team and making sure everyone's operating within the parameters, but you're not policing yourself. It takes a lot of self-awareness and maturity that I didn't have at the time to do something like that. But when it finally clicked and I sort of shifted gears, um, you know, and then having this drive to where I wanted to be, because I knew where I wanted to be the moment, you know, I stepped foot in my first control and the moment that I stepped foot into the WWE production truck for the first time, right? Like I wanted to be the man. And I knew that in order to get there, I was gonna have to bust my ass and work harder than I'd ever done or imagined in my entire life. So that, of course, leads me to my next question. (laughs) To be that man and working under Kevin Dunn uh, for such a long time, what was your relationship like with him? What's it like being in that production truck, kind of getting that experience and seeing the way that those shows are run? Um, God, there's a million questions I could ask you about that. But I guess first and foremost, just your relationship uh, with Kevin and working under him for such a long time. Kevin was one of those people right at the top of WWE that had taken notice of me at a very young age. You know, Kasama would tell me and like other elder statesmen on the road, right? Like crew guys that had been out on the road 15, 20 years. You, you know what that WWE family is like. Hey, kid, he doesn't pay attention to PAs that much. So you're doing something right. And that relationship only just grew. And, you know, he was pretty aware of what I wanted to do, the drive that I had, and was always always making sure that I could walk in a certain instance before I ran. You know what I mean? Like there oh, was- Oh, Kevin will check you. That's for damn sure. Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> I've been checked by him many a time. We, we all have, right? But that's sort of that, you know, that humility that needs to kind of be instilled in you, whether, you know, however it may come. Uh, Kevin and I had a great relationship, um, you know, and it even extended beyond work to a personal relationship. Um, and it, like, I wouldn't call it like a traditional mentor mentee sort of deal. You know what I mean? Because he's a busy dude. He's got a lot going on. So a lot of what he did, you had to learn by his example. I picked up what I knew I could do. Um, and then I figured out what I can tweak and sort of do in my own way. Um, but I mean, make no mistake about it. He is a massive part of why I'm in the position that I'm in right now, because, you know, like I, I joke about it a lot, but in terms of TV production and even the psychology of the business, which is so important to have in this position, I went to the Harvard. I studied under Kevin, Vince McMahon, you know, Triple H, Shawn Michaels, Pat Patterson, Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, like a who's who of people. Can't forget Michael Cole. Kill me. Uh, <laughs> who, always, I, I always give Michael Cole his flowers. We love you, Cole. He's the absolute best, man. But, you know, to have been fortunate enough at that point in my career to have such unbelievably talented, just legends in the game, both in front and behind the camera to help in developing me and bringing my career 
and me and my life to where, you know, it, it got me to at that point. Like, oof. what do you think was your first big break within WWE for them to really take notice and give you um, a little more room to move? My first real big break, and this is going to sound so strange, but I think something that kind of showed, not kind of, something that I do believe showed them that I could handle the highest of all high pressure situations was the night Jerry Lawler had his heart attack in Montreal. Yes, absolutely. That was something I wanted to talk to you about because obviously that was, you know, such an insane moment, but you were right there, right at ringside with him. Thank God everything worked out and Jerry's doing great. Uh, but what was that night like for you? So it was wild. We were, uh, Jerry had worked a match earlier in the night. I believe he was teaming with Randy and I think they wrestled Dolph and CM Punk. Jerry comes back from the match. He gets back to ringside. I towel him off to get all the sweat off of him. And I get him his trademark Diet Coke while he's working the table. Later in the night, the primetime players, Darren Young and Titus O'Neil, are working with Kane and Daniel Bryan, Bryan Danielson. <laughs> yeah. At a certain point in the match, so at commentaries, Michael Cole and Jerry Lawler, I'm sat right next to Michael Cole. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sitting next to Jerry. Michael Cole is on the other side. Cole would always like sign to me or like we would make jokes while we were working. And at one point during the match, Jerry's got his head, his head is rested on his fist like so. And you start hearing snoring noises. So Cole leans back and he's looking at me and he starts laughing because he thought that Jerry was kind of taking on, you know, Michael during the first iteration of NXT, where it was like the, the, the competition based sort of deal used to do that on air. He would like, this is boring and like go to sleep, etc. So we're laughing because we think Jerry's joking. Michael sits back up and Jerry's continuing to do it, but it sounds like less of a snore. Well, actually a snore is like you're struggling to breathe, right? So it's just kind of, and I'm hearing this in my headset because I have the commentators in my headset at ringside so that they can talk to me during commercial breaks in case they needed anything. And Jerry still got the head on his hand. And then all of a sudden, his arm just shot out and his head just slams on the commentary table. We were like all pretty startled. Michael Cole, uh, he's leaning back and he's yelling for Doc Mike Sampson, who is the AEW ringside physician now. Doc's sitting next to me. I immediately get on headset and start alerting the truck to kill Jerry's mic that there's something wrong with him. Doc comes over. He's giving Jerry like a sternum massage to sort of help him. We're trying to figure out what's going on. Doc Sampson's a big guy. I'm a W200 plus pounder myself. And we've got Jerry in our hands and he just falls thud right to the floor right away. You know, we let everyone know what's going on. At that point, we didn't know it was a heart attack. No one really knew it was up. We pick Jerry up. We walk him alongside the hard camera side, which is where like our whole tech row is lighting, you know, pyro, et cetera. The way that the building was laid out in Montreal, it was not the easiest for the EMTs to get to where we were. So we're carrying Jerry. We're bringing him back. Like I remember like TMZ or something had posted a photo and it shows us as we're carrying Jerry alongside the tech area. And I've got Jerry's arms and his head is right here. And if you've never seen anyone get chest compressions before in your life, it is the scariest thing in the world. And you've got Doc Sampson, who's all of 6'1", probably about a solid 240, literally on the gurney mounted on Jerry and giving him chest compressions. And man, it was, it was wild. I remember Randy Orton at one point running back to see the scene. And when Randy saw them working on Jerry, I just remember Randy putting his hands into his face and going against the wall. And he just kind of slumped down because he couldn't believe what he was seeing. He literally maybe a half hour removed from working a match with that guy. But 
During that whole time, I'm just in communication with the truck, letting them know what's going on. It was a, a pretty tense scene because um, they were working on him backstage for about a good 15 minutes before they got him in the ambulance and took him to the hospital where, thank God, he came to and didn't remember a thing. Obviously, everyone can see the pressure that you're under during a situation like that. That kind of lets everyone know this guy can, you know, let's give him a little bit of love. Let's put him up in uh, some positions to succeed, give him a little more place to work. Um, what about working NXT and working with Triple H? Because that's a big part of your career as well, um, especially that early iteration of what NXT was, what it was going to go on to become in working so closely with Hunter. To this day, probably the most magical time in my career. And like as cheesy as it sounds to use a word. No, but wasn't it a special time? God. You were there. You were a part of it. You know, like it was, it was funny, right? Like we were, while still under the WWE umbrella, we were kind of all together creating the anti WWE product. It was a, it was a combination of just good old fashioned sports entertainment from like the late eighties where we're creating all these characters but also leaning into what wrestling had become in like, you know, the early 2010s, right. You know, you, you know, you're, you're hearing all the buzz that ring of honor PWG, like all these promotions have. Right. And like, in essence, a lot of like the very best of the best from the indie scene found themselves at NXT with a nice mix of folks who had converted over from being, you know, from guys like Baron Corbin who were in the NFL, et cetera. So there was this nice collection of talent down there. And there was a collection of talent behind the scenes that were all hungry and looking to establish themselves. And I don't know that anything in my career is going to replicate what those first few years of NXT were like, because it really was just an unbelievably special moment. And there's just it felt like a movement. You know what I mean? Does what you're doing now and I know you've been there. You've been, uh, you know, at AEW for a second. You've not even really started like working, working yet. But is that, you know, a, a little bit of part of that, that glimmer of like, man, look at what we can create and do here with all of this talent, all of this like future, how good everything can look for AEW. That was such a big part of the allure of AEW is it's, you know, what, three, four years old at this point. The best part about it is, is that everyone there knows that this is still a, you know, it's, it's still being built. It's still, I don't want to call it a work in progress. Right. But like, it's this, it's this amazing thing. It's like, it's like finding like this amazing, like, like gem hidden somewhere. And that, you know, that it's not even like polished and presented to its full potential. You know what I mean? That that's what was so enticing about the opportunity at AEW is what was so enticing when I went over to Singapore to work for one championship is the opportunity to, to build something and to, and to, and to play a part in establishing a brand, you know what I mean? And that's what we did back in, you know, 2012, 2013, uh, with that, with that iteration of NXT. Santa Barkley is back in this year. He's giving new FanDuel customers exactly what you asked for. Unwrap the gift of a no-sweat first bet up to $2,500 back in free bets when you sign up with the promo code Renee. That's up to $2,500 back if your first bet doesn't win. Now is a perfect time to give FanDuel a shot. The app is so easy to use. They're always giving you great promotions. And when you win, you get paid instantly. So see for yourself why FanDuel is America's number one sportsbook and get in the holiday spirit with a no-sweat first bet 
up to $2,500 back in free bets from old Santa Barkley when you sign up with the promo code Renee, R-E-N-E-E. Disclaimer, 21 plus in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable free bets that expire 14 days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG. For Colorado, Iowa, Minneapolis, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Virginia. 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat for Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT for Indiana, 1-877-770-STOP for Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org for Maryland. Tennessee Redline, 1-800-889-9789 for Tennessee. Visit ksgamblinghelp.com for Kansas, 1-800-522-4700 for Wyoming, or visit www.1800gambler.net for West Virginia. Okay, before we fully dive into all things AEW, and I do want to touch on some one championship as well, but your time in, in WWE you got to do all of these amazing things um, from NXT to, you know, all of these huge shows with WWE, WrestleMania, Summer Slams, big specials, you know, getting the network up off of its feet, all of those great things. Um, I would be remiss to not ask you about us putting together Talking Smack. Why did Talking Smack work? And why is it so hard to replicate something like what we had? So it's, it's funny because when the network launched there was a need for content, right? As there is when any network launches or when any network is just in existence, you need content. And what could we do outside of the in-ring stuff that was going to appeal to the fans? And a lot of that stuff sometimes just fell over to me. Hey, we want to do this, or we want to start doing these kickoff shows before the pay-per-view to sell, or we're going to start doing these post shows and pre-shows for Raw and SmackDown. So we were making it up as, it, as we went. And to answer your question about what made it so special, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, I think what made it so special is that we made it up. Anything that was on Talking Smack and uh, Raw Talk, but specifically Talking Smack, because I think what made Talking Smack so special, that show wouldn't have been what it was if it weren't for you and Brian. Again, right, it's just kind of like the devil's in the details there, right? Like you got, you know, Brian is in the midst of this tumultuous part of his life where wrestling was taken from him and he's still involved in the business somehow, but it's not where he wants to be, but he's making the best of it. But also, right, to, <laughs> like, like we know Brian, Brian was also kind of taking the piss out of things while he was being talking <laughs> smack. And not in a way that he wasn't trying, you know, not, not that he wasn't trying to like bury anybody or not get anybody over, right? But like he was having fun and you were finally in a position to where you could work as a host and a presenter without any sort of limitations, right? Like you got to be Renee, you got to have an opinion, you got to, you know, do your part in storytelling. And for me, it was- Yeah, I mean, if I can just put it back on you a little bit here too, because as much as yes, you can see Brian and I hosting the show and you could see our chemistry and it was giving new talent a really great place to come and figure out their characters, figure out promos, figure, you know, working- all that stuff out. But you, this was also an opportunity for you to get to work without all of those parameters that we were used to as well. This was a big creation of yours. And I think what, what helped me in that position was that creatively, I knew where we were. You know what I mean? And I think regardless of whether we had parameters or no parameters, it had been instilled in me to do what was always best for WWE, to do what was best for the business. And for me as a producer, 
one of the main functions that I hold paramount in all my work is to make sure that my talent looks the absolute best that it possibly can look. And I don't mean that just from aesthetics. I mean that from presentation to, you know, what they're saying and how they're going, et cetera. You know, it's, it's a multifaceted approach and we got to do some pretty cool things and we made, we created moments, right? Oh God. Yeah. It's funny. You, you always hear people talk about the Ms. and Brian's interaction. The one episode where Brian got hot and walked off. What people mm-hmm. forget was the setup that we had done. I think it was a week or two prior. I think Mike was left off the show. Intercontinental title, right? He was a champion at the time. Yeah, he was left off the show and he is cutting this impassioned promo to the camera. And I remember going to you, Renee, take me off the air. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. And yep. I, I didn't even tell Miz that we were going to do this. I just said, Renee, take me off the air. If Mike is talking about how he's underutilized, abused by the system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, let's amplify it. Yeah. Yeah. So you didn't even wrap him up. You literally just did your sign off to the camera and we faded out. And he's still on his on his harangue about being misused and wanting to bring glory back to Intercontinental Championship and being disrespected, et cetera. And it was just that next step that was needed to get him to come back and to have that epic confrontation with Brian. God, I forgot about that. That's such a brilliant, like that really was the key to unlocking the reason for him to completely come and unleash the next week or this two weeks away. You, you could argue that a lot of Mike's frustrations at the time were legitimately coming out on the air and he had every right to be, right? And to be able to give him that outlet and then look at what we did, right? You know, we had started creating moments and enhancing characters on the show without any adult supervision. Then the adult supervision kicked in real quick. (laughs) Then the the adults came in and they said, uh, hey, you guys are doing something here. We're uh, going to start putting a couple of writers on this. And slowly but surely. And and, it's look, it's Uh, God rest its sweet soul. Yeah, not, you know, not taking anything away from the writers. They're an unbelievably talented group of folks. Man, yeah. Bust their ass off. But there was just something so organic. We weren't overthinking it. Yeah, we weren't trying to overthink it too much. And if you see a moment, amplify it. Well, that's where those parameters started to come in, right? You know what I mean? Like, you know, even when we would do our kickoff shows, I never liked to tell you guys what to say. I would, you know, make sure that you guys were setting each other up well. What are the points that we should hit, et cetera? But then at a certain point with those kickoff shows, they started to get writers on and they would come on headset and be like, hey, uh, Mike, just so you know, Renee has a line to hit here. You know, I know I'm not the easiest person to work with, but, you know, I've had no problem a time or two telling a writer to fuck off when they were trying to get involved (laughs) in what we were doing. Fuckity, fuck, fuck off. Um, Okay, so I feel like we have kind of covered a ton of WWE things. Why did you leave? Because you left on your own terms. You left pre- the COVID era all happening. You left, was it like May of 20? Yeah, May of 2020. Um, Why did you leave? So I had gotten to a certain point in my career there where I wasn't really being developed any further. My schedule was pretty wild at the time. Those last six months before I left WWE, you know what I mean? I would, I would do Raw on Mondays. Tuesday, I would fly from wherever we were in the world to LA to go do backstage. Take a red eye from Orlando on from LA on Tuesday nights to Orlando, sleep on the plane, go do NXT, which at that point had gone live on USA, work office hours on Thursday. Like I would fly back to New York with Triple H on Wednesday night, get home at about like 2, 2.30. Thursday was doing office hours and kind of prepping for everything to come after. Friday, we would do SmackDown. 
Saturday, maybe a down day. And then Sunday, it seemed like at that point in life, we had like a pay-per-view like every other week. Oh my God. Constantly. Yeah. Yeah. it, It was a lot, but I didn't mind it, but I mean more so in terms of like my professional development, you know, it was always inferred. And I think at some point, maybe even formalized that should anything have happened or if you decided to retire, right, that I was going to be the successor to Kevin Dunn on the TV side, right? But I, at that point, was self-aware enough to know that I couldn't do it. And not in the sense that I couldn't do the shows. I can do Raw and SmackDown in my sleep. Pay-per-views, no problem. All that shit. I'd show them that I can do it. But it's more so the business end of it and the, you know, the, the non TV side of what that role is, because there's more to what Kevin does than just sit in a truck and line produce raw SmackDown, you know, whatever show it is. I I'd grown tired of hearing, we can't figure out what to do with you until we know what Kevin's future is. My review was always, you're doing a great job. You're killing it, but we don't really know what to do until we get an understanding of what, you know, what Kevin's future is. It's that heartache of not living up to your potential as well. Right. You know that it's there. Kind of, because I just knew that, like, to your point, like, yeah, I knew that there was more that I was capable of, but I had already excelled in everything that they had allowed me to do at that point. You know what I mean? Like, I was looking for that new challenge. And even if it was something that were outside of the scope of what people would have defined as my potential, it would have been nice to have been able to kind of spread wings a little bit and take on a new challenge. So, you know, once I kind of realized that I was in the lane that I was in and the path to the destination wasn't really going to change or even progress that much. And I knew it was time to make a change. I think it was the first raw of March and we were in Brooklyn. And my manager at the time was sitting next to me in the B unit because it was a local show. A lot of folks had come in. I said, Hey, I'd like to talk to you and KD this week. I'm tapped out. I'm done. Oh, I remember you told me we were in Phoenix when you told me that you were done. Um, I will always remember that because I was like, wait, you're leaving. Oh, my God. Like a panic that I felt that because, you know, it it happens a lot where you, you're on the road a lot. Like we've already kind of laid out. It can be very physically demanding, emotionally demanding, mentally demanding, all of those things that there are times that you're like, man, like what is the next thing going to be? You talk about it. You kind of wonder what that next step is going to be. Um, and then when you told me that you were leaving it was like, holy shit, it's like real. It's happening. You've made the decision. You are believing in yourself. It's time to go find that new thing, which lands you in Singapore. (laughs) So I give my notice. You're starting to hear rumblings on the news about this coronavirus. We're doing NXT at the Performance Center because Full Sail University, where we had normally done it, was booked. I think they do like a Hall of Fame or something uh, in March, or I can't remember what exactly. I think it was their Hall of Fame. So we're doing NXT at at the PC. We do the show. After the show, Hunter and I are at ringside. And we're talking, Hunter says, uh, I'm going to call Vince because I don't know, man. He's like, I got a weird feeling. I think we should leave this set up. He's like, this coronavirus thing, just, I don't know. He's like, I think we should leave this set up. I decided to stay in Orlando. Literally, we find out not too long after, I think it was maybe the next day that everything shut down and we wind up doing SmackDown out of the, out of the performance center that Friday, right? So Triple H does the first ever show of the first ever like sports or entertainment show without a live crowd because of the coronavirus. We knock it out that Friday night and things are happening. I remember I'd gone back up to Stanford and they had offered me the opportunity to rescind my resignation. And I was beyond appreciative of it. But I, you know, I told him, I said, look, I, I appreciate it. I know that we're headed into uncertain times, but if I don't do this, I'm never going to do it. And I need to. And as luck would have it, I had connected with Pat McAfee, right? Because I was 
I mentioned mm. Michael Cole years. How did I leave Pat McAfee off of this? Of course, you were with Pat for a while. Duh. So years prior, right? Like Michael Cole and I were looking for new voices for the kickoff shows just to kind of get out of just like in-house WWE voices. And I remember seeing a bunch of Pat stuff on Instagram. He was at Barstool at the time. And I was like, that's a guy. I'm like, and he's, he's, he's got, he's a wrestling fan. Cole sets it up. We bring Pat in and we'd struck up a friendship. Pat, I think had found out through his agent at the time, who I believe was also your agent at the time. Shout out to Coonan. What's up, Coonan? Yeah. What up, baby? That <laughs> I was leaving WWE and he said, look, you know, things are wacky. Things are uncertain. He's like, but my show is running here daily. Why don't you come on out to Indianapolis and let's have ourselves a time. So moved out to Indianapolis from Manhattan in the early months of the pandemic, hung out with Pat and the boys for a year. But even throughout the, the entire time, right? Like number one, I'm beyond grateful for because I got to learn something that admittedly TV people are completely ignorant to. And that's the internet and the power of the internet, right? Like sure, you remember like even while we were at WWE, there was this inherent divide between the digital side and the TV side. You know, it was, it was almost kind of like the sharks versus the jets, right? Like it was very territorial. So, you know, there wasn't ever that collaboration that if it had it existed, if we weren't so, you know, thick headed to, you know, appreciate it, we could have done probably a lot better than even the amazing shit that they accomplished, you know, in the lead up. Right. So yeah. I'm exposed to this whole new world working with Pat and just like the unbelievable pace and what they're doing, like, you know, watching them close deals and then execute them live while we're on the air. Like it was wild. And we're doing like a sports daily show in the middle of a pandemic, but I missed live like entertainment, right? Like I missed yeah. putting on a show for a house full of thousands of people and ultimately decided to head back, was kind of unsure of what to do. And then one championship came into my life. So I remember you asked, like you and I have been talking about it and you're like, I don't know, should I move to Singapore for the year? Like that seems crazy. I'm going to go work for one championship. And me at the time, I'm like pregnant, kind of like lumping along, doing my thing. And I'm like, man, what an opportunity to be able to go live in Singapore, experience a different part of the world for a period of time, go work in the MMA world. It's not pro wrestling. It's, you know, that like adjacent kind of world, still kind of similar, going to scratch that itch to a certain degree. Um, what was the experience like at one for you and being in Singapore? The whole, the whole experience was awesome, right? Thank God for my amazing fiance, Tori, for being just sort of the support and the driver to make that happen. Right. And Marley, don't leave Marley out. My sweet baby girl, Marley, the best dog ever. Um, bless her for taking two 18 hour flights to get her two. <laughs> I can't believe she didn't shit on the plane. Blue would have shit on the plane. 100%. He is a pro Renee. Marley <laughs> is a pro. But you know, the opportunity had presented itself to join one. And a lot of people don't know, you know, this obviously, but at the time, I had started having talks with people at AEW, but it wasn't the right time for either of us. I don't know that I was ready to get into wrestling and they, you know, they had a pretty solid crew. Keith Mitchell was still in the game. I don't think they knew that Keith was going to wind up retiring a couple months later, but a lot of folks on the uh, AEW side that we had known from WWE had, uh, you know, spoken to Tony a lot and had, you know, talked to me about coming down and just checking things out and just saying hello. But ultimately, you know, one was the new home. And I remember when they were during the recruiting process, they were like, well, we would need you in Singapore. Would you consider moving to Singapore for this role? And I remember telling the CEO, Chatri, I was like, Chatri, I don't think living in Singapore is even in the top million things that I want to do before I die. <laughs> and I remember my fiance and I were driving one day and we were kind of doing like the pros and cons of it all. And she looked at me and she said, look, we're not married. We're not, we don't have any kids yet. This is the time for us to take an adventure. Let's do it. So we move out to Singapore. Uh, one of the most amazing experiences. Uh, that I will be forever grateful for. It was unbelievable. Just the immersion of culture, 
you know, and watching it just kind of come back to life as Singapore made its way through the pandemic and to experience this whole new medium of operation, right? Like while it was still live TV, my God, that I like, I've always been an MMA fan, but to be able to dive in further into it was just unbelievable. Right. And there's still that element of pro wrestling. Right. And it's not necessarily pro wrestling, but like the pageantry of something. Right. It's antagonist and protagonist, you know, person explaining their why, et cetera. Like it was an opportunity to tell stories, to manipulate emotions, just now having a different avenue in which to do it. And, you know, I sunk my teeth into it, had an amazing team out there to work with. Um, you know, a group of men and women that I, that I miss very, very dearly, but I know that they're continuing what we all started to build together. And we had, we had a blast. We had an absolute blast, you know, was there for, I, I produced probably the longest show I think we've ever produced in my life, but to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the company, we put a show on back in March called One X. And then this past August, uh, having a tremendous launch on Amazon's prime video platform, uh, where my man, DJ Mighty Mouse took home the, uh, the, the 26.4 pounds of gold. You know, it was uh, it was an amazing ride and to get to do stuff like that, right? Like, you know, two awesome things to to kind of put in the old uh, journal uh, <laughs> later in life when my brain doesn't work. But there was always something missing. You know what I mean? And I think even after I had left WWE, I had always felt that I had had unfinished business with wrestling. Now you are back in the world of professional wrestling. You just got back to the United States, like just before Thanksgiving, you're getting reacclimated to everything. You're doing all of all of the regular things of just like getting your life back together. You've signed to All Elite Wrestling. You are now the senior vice president, co-executive producer of AEW. What all went into this decision and for you to get back into the world of pro wrestling? Like I said, right, unfinished business. There was there was definitely unfinished business and a I don't know that I left wrestling feeling fulfilled. I think when I left the WWE I was burnt out at that point and I was frustrated. Takes a while to kind of get that energy back a little bit. Did you feel that? I felt that. It took me a little bit to shake that off, longer than I thought it was going to. Even after I left WWE, you know, I I, I left Jump Right in the Pat to, to Pat's show, but we were also in the middle of a global pandemic, right? And like, you didn't really have time to process that I just left a place that I had literally spent a third of my actual life working in where I grew up as a man and I hadn't had time to process that. You know what I mean? Nor were like the, the situations that were going on in life in a place for me to process that it started, started to dawn on me that like, you know, Hey, there's still a lot more that I've yet to accomplish. You know what I mean? And around the summer, I had started talks again with AEW. A few folks had reached out Shout out to Mega, by the way, who I think is a girl. The woman is a wizard. She's she's got that like thing that Hermione had in Harry Potter that allowed her to be at the same time. But, you know, Mega and Tony, they were pretty inviting right from Jump Street, just saying, like, you know, hey, we have an opportunity here. We feel that the company is at the threshold of sort of that next level and the next iteration of what AEW is in establishing our identity and everything else in between. And they, they want to gauge my interest in seeing if I'd be interested in coming along for the ride. So it was a pretty long process, right? And at that point, I said, look, I'm certainly interested for sure, but we were getting ready to launch one on, on Prime Video. So, you know, I wanted to give that the focus that it deserved, but it had occupied a lot of my thoughts. And we got to the point, ultimately, as conversations progressed, I mean, we were literally 
packing up our bags to head back to the U.S. We were still kind of going back and forth on what this role would be, what I would do, et cetera. But we came to an accord and here I am. You sure did. Yes, you we did. sure did. So as of this recording, you have been out to one TV taping as an employee now of AEW. What do you want to do when you're there and you see things? I know that you had obviously been watching the shows even while you were in Singapore. You were keeping tabs on absolutely everything. What do you want to come in and do? I want to contribute. I want to help to build something special because that's what AEW is and that's what AEW has been since its inception. It's, it's a special place. And the energy and the vibe is pretty infectious. You know, I was back at full gear literally days after stepping off the plane from Singapore and I'm, I'm backstage with you just seeing the, the energy and the excitement that the talent have about the product and the company, but also like the, the vibe and the atmosphere. Everyone has been unbelievably welcoming, even on my side of the fence, right? Like I'm walking into a production team, Renee, where some of these folks have been together since WCW. It's impressive. I'm walking into a well-established team already. I am just hoping to be able to add whatever they feel I can bring to the table and what I know I can bring to the table. I want to do it all. You know what I mean? Like, I know it sounds so like generic and all encompassing, but it's true. Like, I want to do it all. Um, I really believe in AEW. I believe in the product. I believe in the talent. Um, I believe in the vision. But just like anything else, you know, any, any, any sort of entity that's growing, right? Like, sometimes you just need to bring in an ingredient from the outside to help you. And I'm not saying that I'm necessarily going to elevate AEW to the next level. Um, that would be very egotistical to say. <laughs> <laughs> I've been saying it for a while now, so I can I can echo that. Reading, you know, the sentiment that's out there and just seeing all the kind words and even like the messages that I'd gotten from new coworkers and former coworkers alike about my arrival there was truly like it was overwhelming and humbling in like the best way possible. You know what I mean? And it kind of gave me that full heart and reignited that fire that I think kind of went out before I left the WWE. And has really rekindled that passion, as cliche and corny as that might sound, to get back in there and tell some great stories and try some new things. It's funny how much like you realize, and everyone always kind of says this when you're in the world of wrestling, but it's like you never really leave wrestling. And when you get back in it, it's like being around, like these people really do become like your family, no matter which company anyone's working for. We're all kind of rooting for each other. We want to see everyone do really well. And um, I know I felt that way as soon as I started in AEW and I had been around, I had been around there with John, I had been around hanging out, but I wasn't working. So I was like, mm, okay, I'm just going to go hang out over here and stay out of everyone's way. But now to be like back and working for me, it felt like a puzzle piece had slid into place properly. I felt like I was trying to like move a spot in. It wasn't quite fitting that now I felt like I was able to place that in properly. And I was like, oh my God, I love professional wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, hey man, it's the truth. And I think also not because this is your show. Um, it gave it, it, this now presents me with the opportunity to work with you again. Yes. Oh my God. And, but also to work together in a different capacity Mm -hmm. um, behind the scenes as well. Right. Because, you know, yep. I, I'm sure people know that you've got yourself a little bit of a behind the scenes gig to help develop a lot of the on-air talent, right? Like we've got such, you know, Lexi Nair is sort of this diamond in the rough that with, you know, just the reps and the guidance can be an absolute game changer for us. You know what I mean? Agreed. Agreed. It's funny. I feel like I like 
I'm, I'm big into Lexi Nair. I'm a big fan. I think she's great. I think she has such a great attitude. She looks like a million bucks. I, I, I just think she's awesome. Um, so I can't wait to be working more with her and, and anybody else. I mean, I love being able to use all the expertise that for both of us that we've been able to earn over the last decade or so to be able to, to now take some of that and apply it somewhere else and be creative with it. It's not just copy and paste. It's being creative and being, um, being thoughtful about how we're, we're moving forward with things. And definitely, yeah, it's not just trying to replicate what we had done before. Um, so going back to my loaded question about what you want to do in AEW, and you said you want to do everything. And I get that because you are, I mean, you're the guy that's in the truck that's being able to call the show and direct the show and all those things. But you do so much more than that in terms of like, you're really great at helping people with their promos. You're really great at helping people with the pageantry side of things, of putting together really great entrances just all of that character work in those moments, like you were talking about. Um, is there someone that really sticks out to you that you really want to work with that you can see that there's that something special? There's obviously a ton of familiar faces for you in AEW, but some of the newer people that you've not gotten a chance to work with that, that you see something special in. The roster is just full of stars, right? Like stars waiting to, to truly just be let out, right? Like Jade Cargill is uh, yeah. someone that I remember seeing her for the first time. I messaged Mark Henry because Mark Henry basically was responsible for discovering Jade. I said, holy shit, this is a star. And I don't even think that we've scratched the surface on the presentation of Jade. Um, Ricky Starks, another unbelievably talented young man. Guy can talk, the guy can work. MJF goes without saying, you know, but not so much to enhance, but to actually be able to get the chance to work with uh, someone as dedicated to the craft as MJF. Like, I'm very excited about that. Uh, it'll be great to work together again with like FTR. Honestly, there's just so many to name. And I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to get you. Sort of- <laughs> <laughs> no heat, brother. I've only been here for about a week, but <laughs> honestly, Renee, like it's again, right? Like we were talking about NXT beforehand. I have that same feeling in that there's so much out there to work with and everything is just so like, it's raw. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's raw and just waiting for folks to apply the right touches or whatever, or mm-hmm. to help these men and women figure out what are the pieces that we need to accentuate and what are the pieces that we need to tweak. What are some of the big differences you see between WWE and AEW from terms of how the shows are put together to stylistically, some of those things, like what really sticks out to you? It's a little interesting, right? Cause it's only been a week, but you know, I, I had my, my observation glasses on. A lot of how AEW is brought together is very reminiscent of legitimate sport, boxing, MMA, baseball, et cetera, right? Like the way, like even the production crew approaches it, it's very much put together like sport and coming from what I've just done over the last year and a half, I think, uh, I think it's a, it's, it's a nice fit for me to kind of slide right in and, and get involved and get my hands dirty with the team. Creatively, I love seeing the talent you know, being so unbelievably collaborative. And I'm not saying this as a negative difference between WWE or AEW. I think it's something that that both have. But again, having been removed from wrestling for the last couple of years to come back and see just a lot of these, even the more established names on the roster, you know what I mean? Just like how how much they're they're unleashing their creative prowess, not just for themselves, but for like, you know, the other folks on the team has been like really cool to see. And we're getting ready to kind of 
this was already in the works before I arrived, but there's a whole new presentation planned for what the show was going to look like starting next year. Like there's a, there's a lot of cool stuff on the horizon that just makes this a very exciting time. You know what I mean? Like I've like that ish that I've had for the last, you know, two and a half to three years is about to be getting a good scratch. Yeah, (laughs) scratch. Uh, Okay. So my final question to you, You've worked on so many different types of shows, um, whether it's, you know, something to the the grandest stage of them all, like a WrestleMania to the, the beginning stages of NXT, to what you're doing at AEW now, to what you've been able to do at one of all of these shows. What can make a wrestling show great and, and successful? Folks in our age range always talk about the Monday Night War. And I remember when I was a kid, the most worn out button on my remote control for my TV, my little 12 inch TV that was in my bedroom at my, my mom's house was the channel back button. And it would allow you to go from the previous channel that you were at to wherever you were on and going back and forth between USA and TNT because of the unpredictability of true live TV, right? Like the way the shows were formatted and I get it. It was the time it was, everything was made to be, you can't miss it. If you tuned away for a half a second, you were bound to miss something. I miss the unpredictable nature of live TV. I feel like that's something that's been lacking for a long time because for a while there was really nobody for WWE. And now here comes this strong powerhouse in AEW that's become a viable place for people to go and work. And I think the other thing that, that you, like the two big things that you need, right? You need characters, you need characters and you need story. You know what I mean? When you have characters that people are invested in and the storylines that they're invested in, that's the stuff that's going to resonate with your fan base. You know what I mean? And you can throw in some cool matches in between and watch people do some cool shit, but without story, without characters, how are we using those elements to distinguish a roster that is stacked with talented men and women from left to right? So, you know, to be able to offer a new way to present that or to tweak what we've been doing and, you know, to just hopefully create moments that are going to stand out in fans' minds so that, that water cooler talk that everyone's always chasing, like to be able to bring that back to make wrestling the destination again. That's the goal. Hell yeah. Well, Mikey, I'm so fucking excited that you are at AEW. We've got such a great crew, great team, great talent. And now we got you in there. So again, I'm, I'm so pumped. Let's get to work. Time to go. I'll see you in San Antonio. I will see you in San Antonio. Giddy Thank up. Thank you so much for having me. This is, look at this. This is incredible. We got to sesh it up. We seshed it up. We finally seshed it up. But no, seriously, I'm pumped to be back with you. I'm pumped to be with AEW. And to all the fans, man, get ready. We're going to be doing some cool shit over the next couple of years. We hope you enjoy it. I know I will. A big thank you to Mikey Mansuri for hanging out with me on this episode of The Sessions. By the time you guys are hearing this, he's been to all of two TV tapings for AEW. So certainly in the infancy of uh, being on the road with AEW. But I I honestly can't wait to see uh, what's going to happen when he can really get to work and do his thing. And just to be able to work together with him. There's so many things in AEW that I want to do personally from hosting different shows to how I can be involved in the broadcast differently, all sorts of different things. Um, And I feel like Mansuri is uh, one of those guys that can really help execute some visions and make some stuff really, really great. So hell of a signing, Tony. Tony Khan, you up and did it. We've got Mike Mansuri on board. 
here we go. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, happy holidays. I hope that you're enjoying some time with your family, eating lots of great food, watching some great movies, having a little downtime. Let's have a little downtime, shall we? All right, guys. Thanks again for hanging out with me. Uh, coming up next week and into the new year, we're actually compiling some of the best ofs from 2022. We've got some really, really great episodes put together. Um, Emilio has been hard at work putting together some of these best of uh, editions of the session. So I think you guys are going to really like those uh, to get us through into the new year. So until then, everybody, this has been The Sessions. <laughs> <laughs>